So welcome back everyone to Next Gen Marin's podcast, Priced Out, where we discuss current issues we face in Marin County. My name is Kevin, and right next to me, my associate Dylan, and I have the pleasure, we have the pleasure to be with the CEO of Canal Alliance, Omar Carrera. Bienvenido, Omar. Gracias. It's great to be here. Thank you. ¿Cómo está? Muy bien, gracias. Uh, it's, you know, it's fantastic to be in a beautiful afternoon in Marin County, talking with young people who are interested in changing our communities for good. Definitely. And, and on a Friday too, right? And Friday too, exactly. Sweet. Before we get to the good stuff, I got to say, I have to ask you, are you a Real Madrid fan or a Barcelona fan? I'm a big Barcelona fan. All right, oh, that's how, that's how we know he's... That's how I think this podcast is going to go well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Tiki Taka. Mm. Oh, I play soccer. I coach soccer. I'm, I'm a volunteer soccer coach. I've been coaching for almost 17 years. And all I teach the kid is you don't need more than two touches. right? Very true. Oh. So yeah. when you see Barcelona playing a uh, one-touch game, it's, it's like, you know, fascinating it's and and then the only one that doesn't need to be passing the ball is messy exactly so I'm put that out there. <laughs> exactly that guy's on another level he is. but you're right you uh i did i was looking you up and i noticed that you are a quarter madera coach soccer coach yeah i've been coaching in mill valley i started in mill valley and then when the soccer league in, in quarter madera started i moved there that's home for me it has been oh. home since i moved from ecuador um, so yeah, is and having able to be um, to build amazing relationships through soccer. So that's awesome. Yeah, we can talk a lot about that for sure. I, I like happy out, to out, do that outside of this. Yeah. Um, would you like to expand on your personal background a little more and maybe how um, you became so in, um, involved with being an activist in in Marin County? Yeah. So I'm from originally from Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in Ecuador, and I was a senior consultant for Mitsubishi. So that's what I was doing. My first degree is in, I, I became a CPA uh, very young, and then I moved to the business school. And I was hired by Mitsubishi to do accounting work first, and then over time I moved to the business unit and doing a lot of the business performance improvements and really just helping, you know, organizations to achieve the goals that they wanted, which was mm-hmm. increased revenue, right? Mm-hmm. So that was my background. Uh, my wife is from Marin County. She was born in... I believe she was in Middle Valley or, or Tiburon. Mm-hmm. And at one point, she just got tired of Marin County. You know, she is like, I'm going to travel, learn a second language, and move out. <laughs> Went to Mexico. She is a registered nurse for, of UCSF. Oh, wow. Went to Mexico, started learning Spanish, fall in love with the culture, and continue south. Mm-hmm. Went to Ecuador and fall in love with the country. Mm-hmm. And she decided not to be a tourist only, so I want to start a business. And I was doing some business consulting there, and it happens to be in the same place, and... I fall in love with her vision for the business, and then I fall in love with her a couple of years later. So that's beautiful. So that that was my background, and then the Ecuador, unfortunately, the economy collapsed in the late nineties. The banks stole the money from all of us, and all I had was a piece of paper to say how much money I had in the banks. Wow! What was the year again? That's nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine. Wow. Nineteen ninety nine. So two million Ecuadorians have to. You know, they were forced to leave. And that's how the, the migration is very complex. And people, were, you know, that when I'm involved in conversations about, in, in, about immigration, they talk, they talk about immigration in a very simplistic way. And it's not. It's very complex. Sometimes we don't choose to leave. We are forced to leave. And the irony of this, that the people that were responsible for that crisis are living in the United States with asylum, protected by the Democratic Party and Republican Party. Wow. So that's how it works. So... I had to leave my home country and move to Marin County. So 
my wife lived in Coromadera, and that's where we end up. Is there a sense within Ecuador? Do people are people aware of this? Are people aware that these people who got away with this problem they just fled to the U.S. and are, oh yeah, that's always the that's always the the trend. Wow, mm-hmm. and particularly in Florida, you go to Florida and all the people they have messed up with Latin America are living in that state, protected by politicians. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah, we always wonder why there's anti-American sentiment in other parts of the world. And I think in the U.S. we don't realize people are very attuned to what's happening in these countries. And, you know, a lot of Americans aren't aware of things like this happening. Yeah. You, if, if you want to understand immigration, you just pay attention to the foreign policy of this country and you're going to find a lot of links with immigration trends, right? In Central America connected to the, the war against drugs, you know, Mexico included, then you see those economic fair trade agreements signed, big corporations going, mass producing, killing uh, small farms. And then when you start seeing a lot of the migration coming from remote cities, right? So all of this interconnecting a globalized economy is ridiculous to think that any decision that we make here to benefit to benefit ourselves is not affecting negatively to other people in the world. Yeah. Wow. We gotta think about everybody else. Um, talking about that. I'm glad you're not connected with that group of people. <laughs> um, when so after you came over to to Marin County, what were your plans? What what, what were you doing? Well, I, honestly, I didn't have any plans. Um, I just moved. I have to. I mm-hmm. didn't have any other option. I have a three year old daughter and a lot of dreams, right? For her, for for myself, for my family. So I just decided to move to a place that it was safer at that time, and there was it had more opportunities. Right, but I was not clear exactly what I was going to do. So my first instinct was to translate my resume. And I had an interesting background. So every single job that I apply, I was invited for an interview. But I didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. So in every single interview, it's like, you know, just come back when you can speak better English. And, and it was very frustrated. So I did. That's, you know, I, put, I put myself in a very intensive program. It didn't exist an intensive program in Marine County. The only intensive ESL program, it was part of the community college, but that is a program for foreign students that are coming to be part of the, to apply to um, U.S. universities. It was not intended to help someone just to join the workforce here, Mm -hmm. right? So I had to create my own intensive ESL program. So I was attending any ESL classes that was available around me. I went to the adult education at Redwood High School at night, College of Marine, and that's how I found Canal Alliance. So then I was talking with some fellow immigrants. Okay, how do you find jobs here uh, if you don't speak the language? And said, so, oh, you just go and walk around the block and go inside the business and ask them, hey, do you need people? And they will tell you yes or no. And say, so, oh, that sounds like I can do that. So I, you know, I live in Corimadera. I left the, the house one day with my resume and I went to the first restaurant that I found and said, no, we don't need people. Okay, keep walking to the liquor store. No, we don't need people. To the gas station, no, we don't need people. And then I end up in the pet store, uh, in the local pet store, and said, do you need people? I said, sure. And they offered me a job, and my responsibilities was to clean the floors, clean the bathrooms, and that's how I started. Wow. wow. So my ego got taken care of that. Uh, if I had one, got destroyed. But I will say that job, it put into perspective things uh, about everything, about myself, about my life, about what I really want to do. Yeah. And really, I think, has been the best thing that happened to me is really becoming a more humble human being and really understanding that my pain was not really so painful. 
when you talk to other immigrant fellows and they tell you the stories why they left, I lost money. They lost their family members. They lost a lot more than me. So it really was inspirational for, uh, to me to listen to other stories. And then I really decided to build my career in a sector that I never had any connection with, which was the nonprofit sector. So I changed my careers towards that. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. When you were doing the ESL program, I, I actually taught ESL at a community college in, in the East Bay. What, what I noticed is it is mostly students and they need a certain kind of tutor. They need someone to help them with homework. But people who are a little bit older and they just want to learn the language, there's not a script. The university doesn't have a plan for them. Like, you know, they, they told me, well, maybe just talk to them. So people would come in and they would say, I don't really have homework, but I want to learn English. And then we'd have to on the spot come up with some way to do it. Like, let's have a conversation. I'll show you the structure, sentence structure, et cetera. So, the, you know, the learning a second language is different depending how old you are. Right? I, my daughter came here when she was... How old was she? Close to five years old, and she learned English in 24 hours. Right? Mm -hmm. I moved here when I was 29. So learning English was definitely harder. So when you go to those places, I was looking for places where I really, when I just learned, right? Uh, I didn't know exactly what the experiences were going to look like. So when I went to Canal Alliance, they had a classes about construction. And I had no plans about working in construction. But any English was good for me, right? So I, let's learn about construction. I went to Redwood High School, and it was more about focus on the, in the conversation. Right? Let's just talk, because that's what many adult immigrants, what they want is to start working. And being able to talk and have a conversation, that's one of the priorities, right? English is a, a language that is, you know, is very complex in some things and easier in others. The conversational part is the number one need that we have as immigrants to be able to achieve first. Then it comes the grammar, right? Because that's the completely different. How you speak is completely different how you write it, right? Oh, and, and then the grammar for English is just crazy. It doesn't make sense sometimes. Exactly. You know? Well, I think grammar for every language is crazy. But, but it, for the, the, the part that makes it harder, harder for me with English is the how you speak is completely different how you write it. Yeah. In Spanish, if you have a bad pronunciation, I will understand what you are trying to say, right? If I messed up with my vowels in English, it changed completely the meaning of the word, or you that oh, I get lost. So I was attending College of Marine to learn the grammar, Redwood High School to learn the, the pronunciation and communication, and then to the canal just to just I it felt I felt welcome and I felt at home. It was different than the other places. So I think that was the big difference is, is in a Canal Alliance, I felt like this looked like more like where I'm coming from and I really want to be part of it. So I decided to volunteer. That was my first volunteer job in my entire life. I was 29 years old. So we didn't, we didn't have a, in Ecuador the concept of volunteerism, right? In fact, when people told me that they do all of that without being paid, I was like, are you crazy? It's like, why are you not charging for your time, right? And coming from the for-profit sector where everything has a value and your time, especially your time. So, but I was seeing the benefits of volunteering in an organization to transform lives. You cannot put a price to it. And that's what I decided to volunteer. So I was volunteering at Canal Alliance. A lot of people know me as a technology instructor. That was my first volunteer gig and also became my first job at Canal Alliance as a technology instructor. So that's how my journey started there in the organization. To a lot of Latino families, I know they have trouble to 
getting to that first step, you know, just going out there and and figuring it out um, because of that English barrier. Um, how did you so what, what gave you the motivation to like just go out there and, and you know, conquer the world and, and like knock down those barriers? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to minimize the the complexity of the process of learning a second language. It still is my commitment. I mean, my English is not to the place that I will feel comfortable with. Always going to be my second language, right? And I had to be okay with that. Uh, and my accent reminds me of who I am, and I had to be proud of that. So instead of trying to soft my accent or completely erase my first language, I just had to embrace the I'm someone from somewhere else, and I'm bilingual, yeah. right? So what kept me focused moving forward was my kids. I think my family was, you know, for Latino, for Latino culture, family is, is in the center of everything. So achieving their dreams, you know, helping them achieve their dreams was my first motivation. And I knew that if I was able to succeed as, as, a, as the adult in the house, you know, one of the adults in the house, then they will have a better chance as a result of that. Um, but yeah, I think that the immigrants are resilient. Immigrants have that self-determination and that's uh, and to achieve the goals that they want. And sometimes it's the language, sometimes it's being able to, I want to put my English learning secondary because I want to focus on something else and mm -hmm. benefit on my children. Yeah. So that's, you know, it depends. For me, it was the need to find a better job yeah. so that I can achieve my own goals and my family's goals. Yeah, that's a real drive. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Canal Alliance? So Canal Alliance um, has been serving the immigrant community and their families for 38 years now. Um, uh, our mission is we exist to break the generational cycle of poverty, mm -hmm. and we use education as the main tool to achieve that. But people that are living still in poverty. So we need to have a lot of services to help families deal with the, the symptoms of poverty. And poverty is a complex top issue, right? And it comes to and affects you in multiple ways. You don't even know how it's going to affect you tomorrow. We all kind of have an idea about poverty, but not really until you actually live on it. Mm -hmm. 2008 was the closest experience for many Americans to think what is poverty. But they went to transitional poverty when they lost their homes. But when you have been living in generational cycle poverty, it's a completely different game. A generational cycle poverty means your grandparents were poor, your parents were poor, you are poor, and most likely your children will be poor. How do you break that? It's very complicated, but possible. And one of the first things that you do is trying to remove the, the mindset barriers, right? Yeah. Help people to be able to think about tomorrow. Because when you're poor, you're thinking about just next hour. Yeah. How going to feed my kids? How going to pay the rent? How going to not get killed in some cases, right? So how can you start thinking about tomorrow or in a year or not from now or four years from now? So Canal Alliance offer a lot of the services to help you remove those barriers to allow you to see tomorrow. And tomorrow for us translate to programs like the ESL program for adults, workforce development, or after-school program to help young people to graduate from a four-year college. So we value higher education in all forms. We, you know, it's not just about a four-year college degree, but a four-year college degree is more than just a job. It allows you to go for a full individual transformation. 
workforce development is good because allow you to getting a job and maybe in a in a good job in no time. But those uh, jobs depends a lot on the economy. The moment that the economy gets shaken, some industry changes, all those people will be without jobs. So we are trying to provide support uh, in a comprehensive way and allowing people to choose what is my right path. So we don't force you to to go in a particular path. We just show you what the paths are and then support you all the way through. Yeah. I've noticed that, yeah, you guys have a lot of avenues and resources, and, and that's what we need in our community for sure. And actually, I was looking at your website earlier today, and I love the mission statement. And it resonated a lot with me because it's something that I haven't experienced in a while. So it says, we believe everyone has the right to achieve their dreams because when we support immigrants, Marin becomes a place where everyone can live, work, and succeed. That that last line resonates a lot because not only can we do that, and once we become able to live and work together here with everybody else, you get a sense of community. And right. that, that hasn't been around for a while. Yeah. And honestly, is and I'm not, I have stopped using a humanitarian argument to do the right thing for, for everyone. I think we as a society have lost our capacity to understand that that is good enough to do the right thing, right? So I'm really using economic argument because I think everybody can is, is, is more open to have those conversations. When you see Latinos, how, what they represent demographically in Marin County and the state of California in the country, you want to make sure the Latinos are succeeding because they are the workforce for many businesses, right? So if Latinos are not finishing school with the right uh, um, um, credentials or the right support, they're not going to be ready for those jobs. They're going to be coming now or tomorrow. So as a result of that, our economy is going to be hurt. And I believe that if we resolve the problems of Latinos, everyone else will benefit. And and just because the numbers, the, the numbers, the just the numbers, period, but also because Latinos are everywhere. Latinos are now, you know, you go see Southern California, you see I mean, Latinos. Yeah, think about LA, right? LA, you see Latinos now in office. You see now Latinos owners of wineries, Latinos owners of businesses, Latinos everywhere, right? So if helping Latinos, it will be just help, is, is, by, is helping yourself. So that's the, the mission of Canal Alliance. We really describe that because I do believe that we can live together in a diverse community by supporting each other. Yeah. Exactly. There's sort of the stereotype of of Marin as, you know, you, when you think of Marin, you think of rich communities, wealthy people, et cetera. But, you know, the, the, the workforce of the community, there's sort of a void of a place to live for, for those people. Right. And as you said, um, when the workforce or the people who are actually, you know, here are not succeeding, then that's a problem for the, the entire community, not just the, the workforce. So I wanted to get into um, housing issues in the canal. Yeah. Um, I know the Canal Alliance does a lot of work with, um, I believe, tenant protections and things like that. Um, could you go into detail a little bit about some issues um, renters face in, in the canal? Sure. Just a little, uh, one more point before I jump to that is when you see Marine County, what are the industries here? They are offering jobs, right? Uh, services, um, hospitality, construction. So, and who is working in those industries right now? Now, when you see, what is the number one funding source for cities, budgets, sales taxes f for many. So that means you rely heavily on local businesses. 
and what businesses need to be successful. They need their workforce. But if you're not able to support your local workforce, if your local workforce has to be driving four hours to get here, that's not good for the economy. And I think that's what the people lose lose workers all the time. And what I'm have been trying to make to make a point the attrition costs, losing people is actually worse than actually paying better salaries or building housing. But we don't get it. We're not there yet. So Canal Alliance is also a landlord. We own three residential buildings. Is not necessarily the housing in the canal is low income housing. There's low-income families living there, but not necessarily in low-income housing. So that's one of the first clarifications. We do own three buildings that are low-income housing, and, but it's in a small contribution to the need. There's only 12 units that we have. So we are advocating and supporting affordable housing, or housing, housing in general, uh, at all levels. Um, from development, we need more housing. We need more uh, housing for all, but definitely more housing for low-income communities, more housing for wo- the workforce. But when we talk about the workforce, I'm always advocating for the ones that nobody talks about. So when we talk about the workforce, is the teachers, the nurses, the firefighters, the police officers, which I'm supporting, but also the person that cleans your house, the person that take care of your kids, the person that's uh, you know, giving maintenance to your house, they are part of the workforce too. So I'm advocating for all uh, uh, those groups. And then the, 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 the protections for tenants. I mean, it's, it's just, to me, it's common sense, but unfortunately nothing is common nor sense anymore. Mm-hmm. We need to protect our tenants, right? And this is not about taking away money from the landlords who have made an effort to invest, and they deserve to get the return of that investment. But you can balance that. You know, you can make sure that you make you good money and make sure that people are protected. And I feel that that has been the missed opportunity that we have as a society, not being able to find that middle point when everybody wins here. We want to maintain our workforce here. We don't want to push away our workforce because what's going to happen eventually, you not get tired to be on the freeway for two hours and you're going to find a different job. And we are seeing already in San Francisco. San Francisco, I think, is the number one city displacing work, the workforce right after New York. So company, what they're doing is, you know, it used to be just people going, uh, and now companies are going behind them because companies are not able to find the talent that they need here. So we are hurting ourselves. So yeah, Canal Alliance is all about policies, about development, and about making sure that everybody has access to live here. So housing is a crisis, right? But we are acting like it's just a small problem. You know, for me in my head, when this crisis, you know, you're being trained in business school, and you, when you are facing a crisis, you had to think outside the box to find solutions to it because the traditional solutions that you have been using is not working or giving you results. So the housing crisis we don't recognize to the extent that we have a crisis here in Marin County because we continue doing over and over and over the same thing. We'll be, we build community advisory groups to work for two years to research what policies we should be implementing, and then we go back and we don't do anything of that. We don't implement them. Uh, or we trying to put pressure only in the private sector to develop housing for us. 
uh, or or government is just coming and telling us that they don't have the money to build housing. So parking, you know, that's at the, at the macro level. At the micro level, in the canal, parking is a crisis. It is. And multiple factors, multiple issues. Everybody has blame on the overcrowding environment that has created that crisis. To some extent, is a factor. I will say it's a factor, but not the only one. Because you have to see the, the, the type of buildings that we have in the canal, they're very old. Mm-hmm. And many of them don't meet the the criteria that you have now in terms of parking units, parking spaces per unit, right? So some buildings don't even have parking units. Um, that's also part of the factor. The other one is the public transport. From the canal to San Rafael to connect you that, that's a very efficient efficient cycle, uh, circle. But to connect from the canal to Tiburon or Fairfax or wherever your job is, it's not efficient. So you are forcing people to drive, right? So people need to have a car to move. So that's a factor that nobody talks about. It, but it is a factor that affects. And then you just have this not enough. This, we don't have no, we don't have a parking structure in East San Rafael. You go to downtown San Rafael, you find six, seven parking structures. And East San Rafael represent, uh, creates or produces 66% of the sales taxes for the city of San Rafael. And we have zero parking structures. So the policy that was implemented to reorganize the parking hours help, definitely help. It's better than it used to be, but by no means is the solution to it. The solution, build a parking structure there. Yeah. That's the solution. You know, that's or demolish all the buildings and build buildings with enough parking for all those units. I, th- I think it's cheaper to build a parking structure. I agree. Yeah. The what's interesting is we hear a lot of arguments against density from from people who tend to say, well, if you know we increase density in these uh, wealthier areas, then that ruins the community or the character of the community. But the people aren't. The people are still coming. I mean, and they're going to the canal and they're living in in homes, you know, three, four families sometimes um, per home. So the the density doesn't really go anywhere. Have you experienced that where you see people living in such, you know, tight living quarters that it's just not a sustainable situation? I mean, I mean, density, I don't think density is just a problem. I think it's just the reality. You know, I mean, we we just see a lot of the cities across the world. It's changing the perspective about density, right? We're actually building infrastructure to create density, but there is other elements that complement that density, right? And public transport is, is one of them. So you know the, you don't want to have a lot of cars on the on the streets. So what? Do, how do you avoid that? You create alternative transportation, right? You make it efficient. Uh, you plan better, right? But I have noticed the Emarin County, we use the argument of environmental arguments or historical arguments, or density arguments, to be very racist in a very elegant way, right? You just come to density, and oh, I'm all for housing, but density brings traffic, which is relatively true, uh, or we don't want to mess with the environment. And I'm all pro for the environment, don't make me wrong on that. What I disagree with the environmental group is, is at, what, at what point people fell off of the environmental conversation. Why is the humans are not part of the environment? So we want to talk about wetlands, animals, air, water, but now people, right? And Marine County has 85% of the land that already is protected all over. So we have 
And most of that is already developed. So the few lands that we have, we should be looking at how can we build more housing. But building here in Marine County is almost an impossible task. So instead of being racist and say, look, we don't want to have people of color in my city. We don't want to have brown or black people living in, in our cities. I want to be using a historical angle or an environmental angle or a density angle to push back. And that has been the, the history of this county. That's why we don't build anything. I mean, we work very close with Marine Transit, good partners. Um, we all are all about supporting any policy that enhance public transport. Um, that is, I think, the, the only solution that we should be looking at. Also, making sure that people are safe riding the bicycles, right? Bicycle infrastructure is needed. Offer that as an alternative for people to go to school or to, you know, go to, um, to work. But when you are in the canal trying to use your bicycle, it's almost, you know, an impossible task to achieve. It's not safe. Uh, we have an amazing infrastructure of the bicycle that just go around the canal, right? You have this beautiful tunnel that connects you through Laxport to the canal, and it goes all the way to Anderson to downtown San Rafael. But if you try to go to Anderson to connect to the canal, that is a wild west, right? So I feel that it's not happening what it needs to happen to enhance the, 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 the quality of life of people living in the canal. And I think to our end, all we can do is continue advocating for the right investments, the right infrastructure to make sure that either we improve public transport, we improve uh, the bicycle infrastructure, and instead of supporting uh, projects to make bigger or freeways. I, I think we are we had to be we had to be done with that. We had to start looking at other areas that we can use. We have water around us and we have not we might be the only country in the world or the only area in the world that we are not leveraging the water as a place to move people. Right? If you are in the canal, I think Kevin you grew up there. Yes. I don't know if you went to San Rafael High School. You I did. So all we had to do is create a bridge. Oh, you're right. Yeah, the canal is right there. Right? You would be in five minutes from the canal in, in, in San Rafael High School. Instead, you had to go all the way to Francisco Boulevard in a very dangerous street, very narrow and dangerous street, to go all the way around. So you make it almost impossible for families to be more integrated and connected with a, with a bigger city. Right. It's like we making sure that people understand that that's where you belong. That is where you are. You're in the canal and you're not integrated with the rest of the city. So all it takes is brave, bold politicians to make things happen. That's all. Everything in that on policy. So we need to have policymakers that actually think outside the box. It's, it still hasn't been built? It has been a conversation, I think, for <laughs> over 20 years. Wow. Yeah. wow. Yeah. It's like the broadband issue. Yeah. Something that is an invisible thing. People don't talk about it. Nothing is simple. So I'm not, I don't want to... The people that are going to be listening to this podcast is, oh, Omar is simplifying and minimizing. Not, not. But we are not the only uh, community in the world that's trying to resolve that. But others have done it because they are bold enough to think outside the box. We just talk about it. We know what the solutions are, but we choose to do nothing. And of course, we blame on we don't have the money. But money sometimes just can when you just present a very attractive project. And then you just go and look for the money. But right now, I think is uh, the bridge and many other recommendations to improve 
the quality of life of the canal residents are captured just on plans, but nothing tangible to make it happen. You had your own consulting firm in Ecuador, so I'm sure you had to experience like local policymakers or even a national at that level. Uh, have you experienced any similarities or differences from, from Ecuador to here, working with uh, um, local policymakers? I think the similarities is the if communities they are being affected by policies or decisions uh, are usually the communities are not actively involved in the moment that those decisions are made, right? And and that always the case. You politicians will respond to who is in front of me. Politicians will respond to the people they are supporting the political campaigns. Politicians will respond to the people they are placing them in power, right? So if you have people that are not doing any of those three things, their pain is not going to resolve, right? Just because you have research to show you that that's the problem or just because you have a lot of people that are being displaced or whatever the issue is, right? If you have children that are not they are going to a particular school and not finishing high school with all the credentials to continue college, which is the true in San Rafael school district, uh, over close to 60% of the students are Latinos in the, in the school district in San Rafael. But only 30% finish high school ready to continue higher education. That is connected to policy, right? So, but what is that community? We're talking about 60% of that community are Latinos. They might not be participating in the school board meetings, putting pressure to politicians to change those policies, right? So who are they in those meetings? Are the ones they, whatever we have in place is benefiting them, right? And I'm sure it's affecting them, but not to the point that is dramatic. So the similarities are the, usually the people that are being affected by those policies are not fully engaged in, in the transformation of those policies. But what you see in Latin America, you get to one point, they, when people say enough is enough, you go to these major revolutions of change we, you don't have that here. You don't have that here. I mean, even if you want to organize a protest, it has to be with permits, right? And you had to go through the sidewalk and stop if the red light is there and before you continue to the street. It's like, I feel that they had taken away our capacity even to protest. And when you add the, the cost of living that we have here in Marin County, families had to work three and two or three jobs they don't have time to, they're sacrificing uh, the time with the kids to be able to pay the rent. So how are they going to go to city council or the school board to be there for three, four hours, to be in the middle of conversations? They are not the structure to serve everyone, right? Uh, they might have translation services, but that doesn't mean that that's what we need. They're not giving us enough context to understand why do we have this issue in the first place. We just jump into the complicated conversation and expecting the people get it or not in 30 minutes. So everything is designed for to prevent the participation of those individuals. So the only way to create meaningful change is by changing the conditions that prevent that to happen, right? And some of the conditions are the politicians. Some of the conditions are policies. Some of the conditions are systems and structures, and of course, this implicit bias, they prevent us to move forward. 
So what I did in Ecuador, you know, part of college was we very I was a very active person in college and and we always go to trying to change the conditions. And I think that's something that what uh, I'm planning to do here. Uh, you know, I don't know how many more years I have to continue doing what I do, but I will definitely invest a lot of time in that part because if we really want to see Latinos thriving and succeeding, we need to change the conditions that are preventing for that to happen. And we all know what are those conditions. All we have to do is take action. Wow. Well, best of luck to you in that regard. I I did have one more um, sort of invisible issue I wanted to discuss, and we actually talked about it a little bit before the podcast, and it was really fascinating to me, and that's the digital divide. Um, So, Omar, can you uh, go over what is the digital divide and what can be done to to change it? Yeah, so historically, the digital divide has been seen as are you connected or not connected, right, to the Internet, or do you have the knowledge or you don't have the knowledge about technology, or do you own technology or you don't want technology, but the digital divide has been evolving um, to the point that maybe ownership has been resolved by the market. Now you can buy a, an affordable computer now. Um, the knowledge has improved the, by technology, in improving the experience for the users, making it more uh, user-friendly, right? So in having a lot of access to information now in YouTube and in, 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 in in everywhere. So the knowledge, the ownership has been resolved. The connectivity we have been coming as a society, you know, to a place that we are discussing now, 5G, right? So it's about the speed. So what happened with the communities like in the canal? So when you are surrounded of infrastructure, how the digital divide looks like now for them in the 21st century? Is the, the, the type of way how you connect to those services. Sometimes it doesn't make sense for families or low-income families that maybe are sharing homes. In the case of the canal, you can access, I mean, not the canal, everywhere. You can access Conca services or 183 services if you are holding the lease or you are a property owner. But if you are renting a room, the person who is renting that room cannot go and have their own account with Concas because there's only one account per household, right? And household in the traditional uh, view is just, you know, one family living in a, in a unit. So that's not the case of the canal. That's not the case of low-income communities. So the products are not designed to serve those communities. And that's why we start having this digital divide. There's an invisible problem because policymakers will come and say, well, there's a lot of infrastructure around the canal. What are you talking about, Omar? They are connected. And that's true. There's a lot of infrastructure, but people are not connecting it. And the other part is invisible, and people need to understand, is the, the mobile technology also has created this uh, misunderstanding about the digital divide. Because the fact that Latinos, when it's true this, Latinos are the number one ethnic group adopting mobile technology in the country. That has been the case for a long time and continued being so. So the fact that they have smartphones, somehow we resolve the digital divide. It creates a misperception. And the reality is the mobile technology, the internet that you see in mobile technology is completely different than the mobile technology the broadband offers you. I always tell people, so if mobile technology is the same, would you choose to do an, an essay in your phone or apply for a job using your phone or research a lot of things where you're going to travel and all the fun stuff or whatever we do in, in, in broadband to do in a smartphone? You won't. You, you choose what activities you do in the mobile technology and what activities you do in, the, in your computer for a reason, right? 
and the mobile technology, the internet and the mobile technology is controlled by the carriers, by the companies. In the broadband, you have a lot of freedom. You can choose where to go and how to see that information. So those are the, the digital device is in, they having invisible uh, negative impact that affects the people in ways that we don't even think about. Schools, for instance, they move, all the teachers move so fast to use blogs and, and use websites. And, and it's great because now the kids have access to the information that the teachers are offering. That was fantastic. What happened with students that don't have a computer or internet at home? Right? Those are the unintended consequences of decisions that we make. And I'm not saying that it was wrong for schools or teachers to move to that spaces, but we have to understand there are a group of students that might not have access to those tools. So what we're going to do to support that? So the, what we are advocating with the broadband uh, project is being able to create an umbrella, a Wi-Fi community, so that people can actually get connected. And then let's figure out how can we resolve the home ownership so that every kid should have a Chromebook at home. And I think the school leaders and the business leaders are excited about that. But we need first to resolve how can we build this uh, community broadband umbrella in the canal. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad I came to this podcast. Very informational. And um, to to our listeners, how can we uh, keep up with Canal Alliance and and you know keep up with the news? Well, uh, you can you can follow us. We have an amazing team. They're doing a great job in social media. So we are, I think, in every single uh, social media outlet, Instagram, you are in, in, in Facebook, in Twitter, uh, in LinkedIn. Uh, also go to our website, sign up to our, our newsletter, receive information, be proactive, join us, volunteer, invest in us, uh, join me in the politics. I mean, I need young people to you know to join these initiatives we need young people to 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 do more we need seniors to do more we need everyone to do more and i think this is the only time that we have to do this yeah thank you thank you very much again for coming and joining us at this podcast we appreciate it thank you so much i appreciate you guys thank you yeah of course Sweet.